Hello, friends. Patrick McFarlane here of the Liberty Weekly Podcast coming at you with another episode. This one is episode number 122, and the show notes may be found at libertyweekly.net forward slash 122. And the title of this episode is Ayn Rand's Objections to Anarchism Debunked. And joining me is the co-host of the show, Keith Knight. How's it going, buddy? It's going great. I've been looking for someone to cover this topic for some time, so I'm excited. Uh, we have... Um, the Ayn Rand lexicon. So it's it separates all her ideas on certain topics, just like an encyclopedia. And we're just going through all the anarchist objections. Should be good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you back on and for us to do another show together. It's been a little bit, but we are busy men, aren't we? <laughs> we are. We are. L um, many obligations. Of course. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start off right away just by, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ayn Rand? because I haven't covered her at all on the show. And to be honest, I don't really follow her work. The important thing to know about Ayn Rand is she was able to write not only nonfiction, but fiction as well. She's mostly known for her fiction, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And she came to America after the Bolsheviks collectivized her father's uh, company. So when she came to America, she was able to not only embrace the principles and appreciate them, but articulate them to the masses in a way that was sort of like exposing the exposing a fish to water. It's like, here is what freedom is. It's like, what do you mean? I'm sort of doing my own thing all the time. Hold on. There, there's places where you have to get the state's permission to do these certain things. That's ridiculous. Well, she sort of exposed the American fish to the water of statism and its possibilities. She warned against the uh, likelihood I would say her best prediction, I think, was to say that the state and the corporations will sometimes merge together against the populace. She, uh, whereas in popular culture, it's seen that there's business who wants free markets and there's government who wants to help the, uh, the public at large. She, she saw right through that brilliantly. She said that uh, collectivism or altruism, far from being a virtue, the purpose of living your life for the sake of others, should be reversed. You should live your life for yourself. And basically, in pursuing your own self-interest, you can do anything you want so long as you don't initiate violence. She was very pro-self-defense against innocent people. That's her short bio, and that's her link to libertarianism. Well, so before we jump into the actual quotes that she made, why don't you answer, why do people hate Ayn Rand so much? The hatred of Ayn Rand really stems from the fact that she doesn't fit the uh, woman advocating big government and advocating feminism. It's always seen as in order for blacks or the poor or certain groups that you belong to, if they don't advocate big government, they're somehow or another sticking up for the man or the status quo. So she really throws a wrench in the typical uh, th thinking that way. I really think they don't like her because she really laid out a consistent philosophy. Everything about, well, she's selfish. Well, all the presidents you worship have engaged in theft and mass murder, and you're against selfishness. So the only consistency that I can find in Ayn Rand haters is... She did not she did not use the typical arguments for or against statism. Against statism might be, well, it lacks inefficiency. She really made arguments on principle. Um, also, um, it, it is important to create a uh, man against woman, black against white sort of conflict in society. So when someone says, 
oh, there's a conflict so big, that's why we need a big government to respond. Only a big government can solve this problem. When someone says government isn't the solution and the free market is, well, obviously you're just uh, signing up uh, for the SPLC hate list. Well, and then so why is it that people connect Ayn Rand to libertarianism? Because I guess the first one of the first things I get from a lot of people when I tell them that I'm a very radical libertarianism it, or a very radical libertarian rather is that they always say something about Ayn Rand and I'm like actually I I don't read Ayn Rand uh, maybe I should maybe I should read Ayn Rand but what I usually say is that well Ayn Rand didn't like libertarians and called them the hippies of the right so is that a true quote am I running afoul I'm actually not sure, but there's a difference between people who have embraced the libertarian culture and made it something or another versus the philosophy. She made it very clear on her first episode, uh, on her first appearance on Phil Donahue, uh, why she, what the root of her philosophy is. And she says, I am the arch enemy of force, of initiating force. Now, why, why force? Why not volunteerism? Why are you against that? She says, well, it stops individuals from engaging in reason what makes them human in the first place. So this, therein lies her connection to libertarianism, that uh, something done voluntarily as the result of free will and reasoned exchange where people can do their own cost-benefit analysis, make the decision for themselves, that is superior to someone coercively forcing their will against another. That is her link to libertarianism, the embrace of uh, self-ownership, self-rule, and the non-aggression principle, even though she wouldn't use those words. But the philosophies are identical, and that's why it's interesting that she'll bash libertarianism or anarchism. Right. Well, I mean, we'll get into that in just a second here, but I, I think that maybe the reason why I always kind of try and distance myself from Ayn Rand is because, uh, one, I actually, like, I, I can't say honestly that I follow her work, and two, is that it's an immediate turnoff with people, like, because people have conceived in their mind that they know exactly who Ayn Rand is and what she stands for, and they hate her on principle, so if you want to get anywhere with these people, it seems like you just have to disavow her. Whereas people haven't heard of Murray Rothbard or Ludwig von Mises or, you know, um, yeah. So what do you think about that? Well, Ayn Rand is not easy to relate to. An immigrant with a thick accent who's very old, she's not easy to relate to. She's not talking about uh, topics of the day. Um, so, so it's very easy to say this is the face of libertarianism, this thing you can't relate to that's old, that's outdated, she's bitter, she's angry, she doesn't like the Palestinians or the Iranians, um, even though she's more anti-war than uh, all Democrats and Republican uh, nominees today. Um, yeah, that, that would basically be uh, the, the reason I think that it's so hard to relate to her. Also, there is the fact that she wrote fiction. So it's, it's much harder to grasp it. And to be honest, I haven't even read her fiction work. It was just her nonfiction that blew me away. There were two books, The Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. That's what uh, really turned me on to uh, her work and uh, her, her ability just to explain business cycles, why some countries are rich, why some are poor, the difference between a moral society, how the Bolsheviks used the kulaks as the reason to gain power, how the national socialists were leftists who just used uh, the, the Jews as a reason to uh, get, gain power. Now, of course, left and right mean something different in America than it does in Europe, and the Nazis would be considered right-wing there, but 
Um, it, just her ability to uh, really analyze history, I think, is uh, another reason she needs to be hidden from the masses. Because she uh, d does such a great job of exposing it. Yeah, well, it's it's really easy to dis someone's or to um, dismiss someone's ideas when you feel like you, oh, I know what that's all about. I'm not going to touch that. Ayn Rand bad. Um, so we're just going to put that in that category. But um, so maybe one last thing here. My cats are misbehaving. Um, <laughs> so one last thing here. Do you listen to Rush at all? The band Rush or Rush? Yeah, the band Rush. Not yeah, Rush. You know, I've seen them twice in concert. They were incredible. I feel like we've talked about this before, perhaps. But, well, you know how Neil Peart has talked about he was really into Ayn Rand at the beginning of Rush. And I don't know if Getty was into Ayn Rand at the beginning, too. But since then, um, Neil Peart has specifically disavowed his his wild younger years and reading Ayn Rand and filling Rush's lyrics with Ayn Rand stories and um, calls himself a bleeding heart something or other. So... <laughs> That's just yeah. an, an example um, of people, you know, distancing themselves because it's not in vogue to like Ayn Rand. Of course it's not, even though it should be with all this female empowerment. What's more empowering than escaping this evil regime and going to a new country, working for pennies on the dollar, learning a new language and writing two of the most best-selling books ever and developing a brilliant philosophy, something uh, that hasn't been, I mean, pr probably the best thing since Aristotle. She, she's loosely post-industrial Aristotle works using reason as opposed to someone like Plato or even John Rawls. So um, yeah, th those are just non-arguments. It's every Scientologist letter that comes in the mail here because we had a new church come by. I used to be lost, but then I found Scientology. Well, just the fact that you changed is not an argument. The fact that, well, Neil Peart was young, but now he's better. Every libertarian I've talked to used to be a status, but now I would never use that as an argument. That's code for I don't have an argument. And please induct us into the Hall of Fame with um, you know Stevie Wonder giving us our uh, inductee speech. That's not... That, that's not a reasoned argument. Uh, yeah. Granted, I haven't, you know, tried to search for his reasoning, but um, yeah, that, that that's very typical. Just to say, I switched. I was wrong then. I'm therefore right now because right now is more recent. It's not an argument, of course. Yeah. Well, and it's really disappointing too. It's it's kind of like on some level you don't want to get to know your heroes because you might not like what you find, and. There's yeah, no reason to it. Eddie, yeah. Vedder, Eddie Vedder said that about Neil Young. And it's it's so true. I met um, this uh, philosopher, David Schmitz. Uh, and I'm like, oh, gosh, he's done such brilliant work. He works at U of A. I finally met him. Biggest jerk ever. Oh, man. Uh, so, 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 yeah. Um, I definitely know what that's like. But then again, it's cool to, you know, meet guys like, jason brennan or tom woods or we've you know spoken to corbett uh right uh, so much so well and they've all i mean the interacting i've done with people that i idolize in terms of the podcast has always been positive uh really nice people especially james um but the thing with neil pert just to revisit that for a second it it's always so weird how when he was younger he was on the like a radical and he was kind of going against the grain kind of a counter counterculture ideology but then getting older you just 
fall into the rut of the mainstream and what everyone, you know, what the uh, the status quo is. And it's just so disappointing to see like, oh, yeah, well, now I'm a bleeding heart and I really care about people. So we need socialism and Canadian style socialism. It's just like that line from subdivisions off of yeah. uh, moving page. It's like be cool or be cast out. Right. They cast out. So they embraced statism and started bashing libertarianism. You might think, I mean, when you read something that's so brilliant, you're like this is going to catch on. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a, there's this new study showing that, you know, I don't want to use too bad of an example, but let's say that the minimum wage or something comes out and it turns out people with the least amount of skills and the least amount of job experience are hurt the worst. Turns out high-skilled people are not harmed. Turns out small business can't afford it, big business can. I remember reading that and being like, oh my God, this is the most brilliant thing. These uh, leftists are going to have no more arguments now. And of course, it's false. Uh, or not, it, it's false. It's never embraced. And it was published uh, decades ago. Mm-hmm. So when something looks like it's going to be so big, it's like, wow, Supreme Allied Commander Wesley Clark saying that there was a plan in 2001 to invade Iraq, Somalia, Sudan, uh, Iran, uh, all under the guise of 9-11. This is going to be everywhere. No one really cared. So when it looks like something's big, you want to try to, you know, get get in front of the circus. But then when it turns out to be nothing, then you're like, well, uh, looks like democratic socialism is pretty big. So I'll embrace that. Conversion stories are not arguments. Uh, only, uh, you know, deontological principled arguments are what we should focus on. Yeah. Well, with that, why don't we segue into the quotes here? So, first one on page 20, anarchism. Anarchy as a political concept is a naive floating abstraction. (laughs) Society without an organized government would be at the mercy of the first criminal who came along and who would precipitate it into the chaos of gang warfare. But the possibility of human immorality is not the only objection to anarchy. Even a society whose every member were fully rational and faultlessly moral could not function in a state of anarchy. It is the need of objective laws and of an arbiter for honest disagreements among men that necessitates the establishment of a government. So I want you to respond to that first. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, um, so it was said really well on Biting the Bullet podcast, which I'll give them a plug. It's a bunch of um military vets that live in a house together they're all roommates and they're all ancap libertarians except for one of them um but they were the one was in their most recent episode they were drinking and they were arguing with the one minarchist and the minarchist um accepted like a lot of the economic principles of ancapism but had kind of this same argument that i and Rand just presented and talking about well, a society without objective laws would just be at the mercy of the first criminal to come along. Well, this is one that we've really talked about a lot on our show together in the past episodes we've done is that what you're really doing is guaranteeing that the criminals, because if you have a government, um, that kind of power attracts a certain type of personality. And so instead of having the possibility of maybe one criminal comes in to adversely accept Um, adversely affect society, you are guaranteeing that a criminal class will exist above everyone else when you have a government. Because 
that power it's a monopoly on the initiation of force that power attracts a certain a certain type of personality and instead of well you're basically guaranteeing the victimization of everyone else um, for a privileged class that has the ability to initiate force over everyone else. Giving one group of people a monopoly on lawmaking does not equal the result of objective laws. In fact, if you wanted objective, morally justified, consistent laws, you would make sure there wasn't a monopoly and you'd make sure they couldn't collect funding coercively, that people had to voluntarily fund them. That is the first thing, naive floating abstraction. That's, it's just sad when someone who's so brilliant says it's a naive floating abstraction. Anytime you engage in a peaceful interaction, it's anarchist. Next thing she says, it would be at the mercy of the first criminal. Uh, I don't see, again, how that justifies uh, one group having a monopoly, because you can always say all the countries, unless there's a United Nations one world government, we're just at the mercy of the most powerful country. Uh, she says it will lead to gang warfare. Oh, as, see, as opposed to statism, where there's not really any wars, there's just kind uh, discussion and free trade. The, the biggest warfare that exists is between uh, centralized states. There have been two world wars. There was a Cold War. Uh, I mean, uh, so, so the fear of war does not justify the existence of a state. The state's the number one cause of war. And, uh, and they're constantly at war with their own populace. I mean, what is the drug war but a war on peaceful people? Or uh, violently confiscating money under the guise of taxation, uh, initiating sanctions against people that kill the civilians while the rulers just could care less. Even a society whose every member were fully rational, basically, she says, the need for objective laws. Well, uh, there is a law in America, these... Uh, right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If anything is objective, it's that statement shall not be infringed. And then there's the First Amendment. The judges in the government could not disagree more on what those mean. So even when you have clearly objective terms, the government judges can't agree amongst themselves. So it's not that anarchism's perfect, statism has faults. They're both faulty. Neither can have objective, uh, totally Ob total objectivity because they're run by humans. So should humans have uh, total competition and voluntary funding or should some humans have rights no others have? That's really the bottom line. So she's saying something that applies towards every system, human beings are faulty, and then pinning it on the anarchist system when it applies to her system more than anything else. Um, arbiter for uh, honest disagreements, again, uh, it's much better to have a voluntarily funded arbitration agency that faces competition rather than a coercively funded monopoly. Well, she's really precluding the possibility of polycentric law and competing forums for the production of laws. And this is something that we've seen throughout history that, I mean, I've done shows on this, but Stefan Kinsella, again, he was on a show just recently. I, it, it was with Corbett. He did a show with Corbett and he was talking about international law and i've found this myself that in mainstream legal productions about um sorry mainstream legal publications and papers about international law it's it's pretty well i mean this idea of polycentric law and law without the state it's not heterodox it's not outside of the mainstream i mean in that forum in international law 
it is very much accepted that a polycentric legal order can exist and in fact has existed throughout millennia throughout human civilization so i i don't understand how she can just throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of and i another thing i don't understand is how her statement on donahue jives with that quote when she says that she's the enemy of the initiation of force yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll read the other ones and she tries to clear it up. This could be a problem of definitions where we don't know what she's defining as a government um, uh, because it's really hard even when she tries to define it in, in, her, uh, in her other works. But as far as the need for laws, it's much more, it's not like food or water where it's objectively needed for survival. Um, imagine going to a town you've never been to without reading any of the laws or a different state or a different country without, is it possible to go to a different country without reading all the laws that are in that country? Basically what you do is you almost use the nap universally because if you're like caught stealing, I mean, auto warm beers stealing in North Korea, it's something. So it's like, even in North Korea, this totally foreign place, you know, stealing's wrong. Of course they're evil. They shouldn't have, you know, done that to him. But uh, when I went to France and Italy, I've been to like half of the U.S. And it's not like, well, I only know what to do if I first read the laws. These are customs that result of decades of voluntary exchange and people finding out beneficial ways to cooperate. So the claim that we need laws or else terrible things happen, we constantly are ignoring laws. How many laws that are in America have you read? I mean, what percentage of the law legislation have you actually read? Well, how is anyone alive doing things? Of course, it's more of a smokescreen. All right, we got a few more of these, so let's go. If a society provided no organized protection against force, it would compel every citizen to go about armed to turn his home into a fortress, to shoot any strangers approaching his door, or to join a protective gang of citizens who would fight other gangs formed for the same purpose and thus bring about the degeneration of that society into the chaos of gang rule, i.e. rule by brute force, into perpetual tribal warfare of prehistoric savages. The use of physical force, even its retaliatory use, cannot be left at the discretion of individual citizens. Peaceful coexistence is impossible if a man has to live under the constant threat of force to be unleashed against him by any of his neighbors at any moment, whether this neighborhood's, this neighbor's intentions are good or bad, whether their judgment is rational or irrational, whether they are motivated by a sense of justice or by ignorance or by prejudice or by malice. The use of force against one man cannot be left to the arbitrary decision of another. Patrick. Well, I think she's precluding the idea that people generally do not want to risk everything that they have which is their life for a small payoff because you know without without so the the way that the state operates kind of guarantees that yes we can we can get into wars and we can use armed conflict to get what we want but they socialize the cost um in terms of taxpayers uh in terms of the populace will take I'm talking specifically about war, but that's what she's kind of talking about. Um, police, too, is that they can recruit these people. They socialize the cost of it for the most part. And then 
when you lose a few soldiers or when you lose a few policemen, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter because we're drawing from this big well. But when you put someone out there who really is sacrificing everything that they have for not very much benefit, um, that is kind of, it's naturally, it prevents people from doing that, from risking everything. And when you don't necessarily, you're not relying on extorting your fellow man for your own survival or your family's survival, why would you just mess with someone else's stuff when you don't really need to? And I think that's that would have to be the reality in the situation that she's talking about, is that well, the only way in an anarchist society that we can provide for our family is to take from someone else. It just doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Also, she's not explaining what species are these things that are, you know, using violence. She's like, well, people, those are individuals. Well, how? Well, then that is the same type of thing that will be a judge or a politician or a banker or a police officer or a military serviceman. So she's saying, People will in, will do this. The individuals cannot be left to this. We need government. What is government but a collection of individuals on a psychopathic level? It, it's like the gang versus the government. One has a badge. The other is just seen um, as like, you know, hippies or rebellious militias. So she's not actually making a, dif a principal difference between a police officer enforcing something and a judge. Uh, and she's also assuming that everyone would have to do this thing if the government didn't provide it. On how would that possibly enter your mind? You don't want the government to make cars, so everyone has to make their own car. You don't want government to make candles. Everyone has to make their own candles and their own fans and brew their own coffee. And everyone makes their own cell phones, or should government do it? It's the biggest non sequitur, I think, that I I've ever come across is... Do you want everyone to do things by themselves? Well, no, that's what trade is. That's what cooperation is. That's what private property rights are in the first place. The ability to own something and then exchange it and then own that other thing. That's trade. Yeah. So she, uh, she's really missing that out also. She is forgetting or not caring to learn that violence is costly. So when you delegate the cost to a group of people who have a recognized right no one else does and they collect funds coercively, they are more likely to engage in the behavior of violence rather than if they had to bear the financial cost and the risk to their, their lives and their family and their reputation. If I steal something, I, I stole alcohol from Safeway when I was 16 and people still remind me of it. And it's seen as like this terrible thing. Of course, I'm sorry I did it and everything, but um, Safeway is a local grocery store. But government steals trillions annually, and people pledge their allegiance to them. So, well, I, I mean, I'm so focused on, like, one thing I did when I was 16. And these people, the, the mass murdering, kidnapping, theft-funded evil bastards are just worshipped. That's why there's so much more violence, because it's not seen as violence when they do it. And that's what she's not appreciating, that more violence will come when you give people a total violence hall pass as opposed to just holding them to the same standards you'd hold any other group of person. Yeah. And moreover, we have real life examples of what I, you and I were just talking about it. Um, and that's the Detroit threat management center. I mean, uh, commander Dale Brown isn't necessarily a voluntarist libertarian anarchist, but he is a businessman and you know, 
in Detroit in some of the worst neighborhoods, he's been able to prevent violence and he doesn't do so violently because, you know, one, he would be sued Two, he would lose the lives of the people he's trying to protect and lose the lives of his own employees. And so he comes up with de-escalative situations and, uh, and tactics. And one thing that Ayn Rand kind of presumes here is that the only way to prevent violence is with violence itself. Well, no, that we have locks for our buildings. We have security cameras. Um, you know, we have these types of things that can, and, and we have, you know, nonviolent tactics, de-escalation, uh, going up and getting close to someone and talking to them instead of pointing a gun or a taser at them and threatening them. And so the market provides a solution to this. And the, we have real life examples of this. Next claim, a recent variant of anarchistic theory, which is befuddling some of the younger advocates of freedom, is a weird absurdity. Okay, it's a recent, it's, it's recent, it's befuddling, it's focused on young people, it's weird, and it's absurd. What are you, what kind of philosopher just engages in like insults in the first half of the sentence? My, my point is, is she really is not approaching this topic rationally, whereas everything else she's golden on. It's like Sam Harris talking about government. He's so rational about like all this other stuff and able to think it through. But when it comes to government, he just snorts a mind control pill. Um, uh, it is a weird absurdity called competing governments, accepting the basic premises of modern status who see no difference between the functions of government and the functions of industry between force and production and who advocate government ownership of businesses. The proponents of competing governments take the other side of the same coin and declare that since competition is so beneficial to business, it should also be applied to government. Instead of a single monopolistic government, they declare there should be a number of different governments in the same geographical area competing for the allegiance of individual citizens with every citizen free to shop and to patronize whatever government he chooses. Okay, that is part one of this objection. What are your responses to that? I mean, that whole argument is entirely useless without defining the term government. Of course, of course it is. And that, uh, th that's how uh, sophistry is allowed to continue when she just calls something government. It's the service the state is claiming to monopolize. That's what they're saying should be voluntarily funded, should be privatized, should be voluntarized. Um, they're not saying there should be different flags or different, um, you know, ne necessarily. Uh, what are what is competition if not the existence of no world government? Right now we have two hundred and something competing governments. As bad as these governments are, it's better than one world government. They're like, well, we need a powerful government in case the Saddam Husseins get in charge. Well, what if the Saddam Husseins get in charge of the world government? So her claiming the problem with competition is bad things might happen, so we need a monopoly. Again, the same thing applies, not only applies to monopoly, but it applies more so to monopoly. Because anything you can list that might be bad of one of the 50 states doing, let's say there were 50 instead of one, anything bad you can list, Alabama will bring back slavery or something, that is... Uh, or bring back the draft, I should say, um, th that also applies to the federal level. 
Anything you say about small can be said about big and is more dangerous when it applies to you. So uh, this, this is just, it's so sad to see someone so good make these uh, r ridiculous uh, comparisons. Well, but, yeah, voluntarily funded competition is superior to coercively funded monopoly in every industry and in every aspect of life. Well, I think the thing she's really mixing up here is that there's no talk about the legitimized monopoly on the initiation of force. And the legitimacy is, I think, the operant word in that phrase. Because, you know, the way that she's phrasing it, I think she's right, is that if you had competing governments within the same geographical area and all of these governments had a monopoly on the initiation of force or violence, you're going to get warfare. You're going to get the same kind of um, anarchic, militarin, uh, militarized chaos that everyone kind of talks about. Of course, when you have different groups that are competing, get different groups with the, a legitimate monopolization on the initiation of force, even within the same territory, they're all going to be fighting over who is better. But voluntarism or anarchy would be meaning that no one has the the legitimate monopoly on the use of force and so i don't know what her disconnect is here in terms but i think it, it really has to do with this idea of legitimacy because if you have different militarized groups running around in the same geographical area or competing within the same geographical area and everyone recognizes that they are legitimate in shooting people and threatening people, then of course you're going to get chaos. But if no one, except for those competing groups, recognizes the legitimacy of those people to do what they're doing, then that's when it becomes you know tough to bring people into the fold. Um, it's like herding cats. But that's when you get volunteerism, and that is what we are advocating: is that no one recognize the legitimate initiation of force period so exactly. where should we, yeah so so instead of saying that um uh, i think what she's thinking is there's a government that has extra rights a lot of other places and groups should also have extra rights that's not what the anarchist is saying the anarchist is saying those rights are illegitimate and any and even if i have a security firm i have no more rights than Patrick and his 10 closest friends, than me and my 10 employees. The difference is the security firm allocates resources, time, and effort into learning how to prevent those things. But no one has any more rights than anyone else. So I think she is, uh, I think it's the word force. She's not recognizing defensive force versus the initiation. And government, she is assuming it's a collective way of achieving the ends of securing persons and property and that's totally false there as you mentioned there's the nest door cameras there's locks there's guns there's knives there's I mean, there's nunchucks there's a ton of non-governmental ways you can protect your life in fact most of the people protecting their lives is against the government who's like and gosh there's so much insecurity like with when you have a government, that total violence is going to break out. Are we going to go to war with Venezuela? Oh, no. Okay. Maybe North Korea. Oh, no. Maybe Iran. Oh, maybe China. Oh, Russia's our enemy. So this illusion that 
property is safe when there's a state and people are secure, but when there's a when there's no monopoly on violence, oh, then bad things might happen. This is the worst condition when you say you guys have rights, no one else does, and then everyone watches them saying, oh, please don't uh, start a nuclear war. I mean, if you go to war with Iran and Russia and China are on their side, I mean, dear heavens, what? You know, the, the, the war that uh, Bibi's been pushing for for, for decades since uh, since he wrote his book in the 80s. So the uh, she's basically engaged in, a, in the illusion that government equals security and non-government means anything might happen when in reality spontaneous order and peaceful coexistence tend to emerge more often in the absence of a state than under a state. Yeah, and for for the sake of our rhetoric going forward maybe between our conversations we should adopt the same definitions as mark passio does in his natural law series or as violence when we say the term violence that should be reserved for the illegitimate immoral initiation of force and see i'm mixing the terms again violence is the immoral initiation of violence and force is the legitimate use of force did, yeah. Do you know which one I'm referring to, Mark Passio's Natural Law Seminar? Well, yes, and this is actually one of the questions I asked him in our four-hour interview. I say, what's the difference between violence and force? So violence is the initiation of aggression, and aggression is an uninvited coercive interference. So that is violence. So I come up to Patrick and with a knife and say, give me your money, and you shoot me in response. You have used force. I used violence. There's only one violent act uh, because I am making a peaceful situation violent. I'm turning it into the initiation of aggression. You are using defense, self-defense to stop the aggressor. That is not violence. That is force. Just as you would have the right to use force to lift up this water bottle in the scientific sense, you would have the force to stop a violent action from being engaged in. So, yes, that is the important difference. Okay. All right, what's our next quote then? What? What's our next quote then? She, well, she goes on to say, remember that forcible restraint of men is the only service a government has to offer. Has to offer does not justify whether or not it's better achieved through a monopoly rather than a non-monopoly. I don't know if there should be one firm, two firms, a thousand firms. That should be the result of spontaneous order and individual uh, voluntary association, voluntary funding. Um, so that's just such a weak line. That's all government should do. Well, if government's so bad and it's so immoral, why should it do anything? She's not explaining why this is in principle different than government making food. I mean, I can live without being defended for 48 hours. I can't live without food for 48 hours. Oh, but then you'll have gang warfare. I'm going to grow food here. No, I will. And then people will shoot each other out. Then there will be mass murder. It's nonsense. So just very weak stuff. Ask yourself, what a competition in forcible restraint would have to mean? Do you have any response to those two sentences? So say that again. What would a competition in force mean? Here, here's the statement. Remember that forcible restraint of men is the only service a government has to offer. Ask yourself what a competition in forcible restraint would have to mean. Hmm. Well, I, what it would have to mean, I would think is that 
you you would be able i mean so you have in the the libertarian and capistan a lot of has been said about hapa's version of you know homeowner societies or what the rules would be in your neighborhood or if you could you know voluntarily acquire land like that i mean i would think that if you needed to you would ascribe to a certain protective agency or a certain dispute agency and you would call them up when you need them and they would have uh, contracts with other agencies to solve disputes. A lot of it would be kind of liquidated in the sense that um, a lot of these arrangements would be prearranged beforehand. A lot of the way that insurance companies handle car accidents, specifically the property damage from car accidents. And I just don't see exactly where it would devolve into the kind of violence that she's talking about because the interest for each agency, whatever agency you have, they are looking to solve the dispute with the least amount of violence because violence equals cost at the end of the day. You're, you're going to have to pay for all this damage. You're going to have to reimburse your customers. Um, if you end up responding to a situation and someone dies, well, first of all, you're going to have to reimburse the cost. Second of all, you might get sued in a lengthy litigation process. And third of all, other your other customers are going to see, well, ABC uh, Dispute Resolution Company showed up and they ended up going to war with um, DEF Dispute Agency Company. Maybe we won't hire their services anymore because well, we don't like our stuff getting blown up or our dogs shot or flashbang grenades being thrown into our children's cribs. So maybe we won't go that route anymore. And then so ABC Dispute Resolution Company loses money and they will continue to lose money in customers and they have no way to recoup that loss because they don't have the power to extort money from people violently against their will. They have to satisfy the customer. So that's how I would envision it. Long story short, she's not justifying the existence of a state when she says, uh, what, comp what will competition look like? P playing the psychic game, asking you to be a psychic. Um, right now, again, there are competition between, there is competition between the current existing countries because there isn't necessarily a one world government. And so to, to say the existence of competition will lead to unsound, undesirable results. Therefore, one monopoly is legitimate. You're not actually making the case. And she, I think she's making more of a reality claim, like just let your mind run if uh, you had different people doing different things, enforcing different laws. Well, you already have every business that uh, has a product deals with 50 other businesses to acquire the products to make their end product. They have disputes all the time. So what they do is they recognize it's both in their best interest to go to a third party arbiter. And the existence of a state obviously does not stop disputes. The biggest, most violent property um, rights violating disputes are the result of government wars, of uh, legislation that confiscates property. I mean, I when I saw the Washington Post headline, of civil asset forfeiture this year has now surpassed uh, home robberies or yeah. robberies. It's like that's civil asset forfeiture alone. That's not even uh, the Fed's inflation policy that hurts the purchasing power of the dollar. That's not even taxation. That's not even compliance with regulation. So um, 
again, th these are just terrible things that could happen. Of course, there's going to be disputes in the absence of a state. The existence of a state does not stop disputes. It makes them more lethal, honey. So, oh gosh, it's just devastating. Don't meet your heroes. Don't read about your heroes. Uh, uh, we're just going to have to start our own thing here. Um, one cannot call this theory a contradiction in terms since it obviously devoid of any understanding of the terms competition and government. Holy projection. Nor can one call it a floating abstraction since it is devoid of any contact with or reference to reality and cannot be co uh, concretized as uh, at all. I don't even know how concretized can't be concrete at all, not even roughly or approximately. One illustration will be sufficient. Okay, so this is um, th this is a litmus test. When someone says, I have one argument, I have one illustration, just listen to this. So this is her best one, and everything else is worse than this. So if we can uh, get a hold of this one, then I think we're good. One illustration will be sufficient. Suppose Mr. Smith, a customer of Government A, suspects that his next-door neighbor, Mr. Jones, a customer of Government B, has robbed him. A squad of Police A proceeds to Mr. Jones's house and is met at the door by a squad of Police B, who declare that they do not accept the validity of Mr. Smith's complaint and do not recognize the authority of Government A. What happens then? You take it from there. <laughs> this is the best she can do. I mean, this was answered pretty succinctly by uh, David D. Friedman in The Machinery of Freedom. And I guess what I already outlined about competing dispute resolution systems um, would take care of this pretty easily. A lot of these would be, a lot of these agreements would be enforced beforehand uh, through contractual relations between these resolution firms. Okay, you don't think that they could foresee the possibility of one client stealing from another client and there being a dispute? I think it would be set up beforehand that there would be a burden of proof. So Mr. A from with government or dispute resolution service A um, suspects that his neighbor B was stealing from him. Well, it is beforehand in Mr. A's contract with his dispute resolution agency um, there is an agreement between government A and government B, and government is not the right term for these agencies, um, but there's an agreement beforehand that there is some kind of a burden of proof that a customer of government A would have to present to government B before they could go forward with any kind of uh, recruitment or lawsuit. There, It would probably be a preponderance of the evidence standard. Uh, which is probable cause. It might be probable cause, which is lower than a preponderance. Probable cause is like 30 or 40% sure that this happened. Uh, preponderance is 50% sure. Uh, but so you suspect that one of your, that our clients stole from one of your clients? Well, let's, let's do like a warrant. We'll review this evidence and information. And if there is, if you satisfy the standard, then we'll go forward from there with the legal proceeding. If everyone shoots each other, everyone's going to lose money and customers. I mean, it's just pretty simple. That's why it's just incredible. Who has the incentive for there to be a shootout and a bunch of people die and a bunch of people lose money? So my first approach is the parties involved have the incentive to come up with a peaceful resolution. Just as any restaurant 
works with Visa, MasterCard, American Express. They work with financial institutions. Those people constantly get into disputes. Cell phone companies constantly get into disputes. Um, you know, uh, internet servers or uh, there's people who produce the product. There's people who make the product. And then there's the retail. There are constantly disputes between those three organizations. And they don't say, all right, we're going to court. Uh, is Judge Judy free within the next month or so for us to bring this to They use private arbitration all the time. And then my sarcastic answer is, well, what's going to happen is uh, if uh, there's ever a dispute, uh, there's going to be a world war. Uh, and then uh, the world war is going to happen again. Then they're going to nuke 100,000 innocent people. Uh, then there's going to be a cold war in which 3 million Vietnamese people die. That's what's going to happen if there's ever a dispute between neighbor A and neighbor B. I mean, come on. How do you not see that the existence of a monopoly, uh, coercively funded state does not address this problem? It exacerbates it. Oh, it's just, that's just terrible. It's yeah. just I mean, precisely her whole point, going back to the other quote about, um, you know, we have these, if we have these competing governments, it will just be chaos. Um, you know, the com same competing governments within a different geographical area. I mean, we really already have that. I don't think she's wrong, but we have, that's illustrative of the international scene where we have different states interacting with their own monopolies on violence. And that's precisely the point that you just made. Next one, the common denominator of such advocates of competing government is the desire to escape from objectivity. Objectivity requires a very long conceptual chain and very abstract principles to act on whim and to deal with men rather than with ideas, i.e. with the men of their own gang bound by the same concretes. Concretes is the way you pronounce that. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> desire. So, so in other words, the only reason people sort of advocate anarchism is their desire to escape from objectivity. Not necessarily. The only reason I objectively uh, am against government is not because it tends to be corrupt or there tend to be lying psychos that are attracted to the situation. It's that you cannot justify a contradiction. That is embracing objectivity uh, as opposed to what uh, she is saying right here. I'm not saying any group has more rights than another. It, it's embracing subjectivism to say, well, this group has rights that no one else has. And it's okay for this group to do something, but not this group, because for a long time, this group has had the title, the Congress group. That is the total embracing and opposition of objectivity. Patrick, your response to that? Yeah, I mean, precisely that. I think that, I mean, I believe the non-aggression principle, while it's not you know, the end all be all, it's a good litmus test at least, but I think it is an objective litmus test. It's like you said, it's completely objective. And it seems like the classical liberal stance or the argument is, and maybe Ayn Rand would agree with this, is that the purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and property, right? Well, in protecting life, liberty, and property, you have to violate life, liberty, and property of everyone underneath this government. It's just a contradiction in terms. And there are some times where it's like, um, okay, guy is knocked out. Is it okay to kidnap someone against their will and take them somewhere else? No. Okay, well, what if the guy's in a coma and he needs surgery? Is it okay to take him against his will and bring him to the hospital? 
Uh, okay, yes. So even though you can find individual examples of where you can do the opposite of what these principles say, we have to realize what the state is. You're saying some people have rights, other people do not. And even though I can sometimes justify forcibly taking someone in a coma and taking them against their will to a hospital because I'm making the judgment, well, if I could get their permission, they would say yes. That's me doing it. And I'm not claiming to have rights no one else has. Uh, coming up with an example of when violating a principle would be justified in no way justifies the contradiction of statism and the institutionalized embracing of a contradiction. All right, we got two more here. Painful. All right, picture a band of strangers marching down Main Street, submachine guns at the ready, as opposed to governments who would just never do that, never intimidate a populace. When confronted by police, the leader of the band announces, me and the boys are only here to see that justice is done so you have no right to interfere with us. According to libertarian anarchists, in such a confrontation, the police are morally bound to withdraw on pain of betraying the rights of self-defense and free trade. How sad is that? They're marching down, what are they marching down? Main Street, all right. So the owner and organization of Main Street has the right to determine what is a legitimate threat and what is not. They have the right to exclude people if they feel from their private property. In fact, only the anarchist has a real objection to this because the status says, well, that's public property, anyone can go on it. But the owner of Main Street would say, yeah, you can have a gun. Yeah, you can have an M16. Yeah, you can't have a grenade launcher. You're going to have to go. If you don't go, you'll be met with our guns. The fact that this is going to happen all the time is ridiculous. Um, it happens mostly with governments, and it would be at the discretion of the private property owner. Some places would allow tanks. Other places wouldn't allow knives. So this, again, is a swing and a miss, according to the Bound of Free Trade. Yeah, it would be decided by private property owners whether uh, the people were allowed to stay with their machine guns or not. Patrick. I mean, just as yourself or just picture the people in your community, there's a bunch of mamby-pamby liberals running around. Are they going to want to take the wife and kids to a grocery store that has armed police, like armed riot cops out front with grenade launchers and M16s? I mean, uh, no. Is, is the grocery store owner really going to keep these first of all is the grocery store owner going to pay a bunch of thugs to sit around with guns and uh plate carriers and you know helmets and everything and is he going to want to still pay for it when none of the families in the neighborhood are are going to want to come to the grocery store and buy their goods with armed security guards like staring them down um i wouldn't i wouldn't go to that grocery store and just apply the same thing to statism. And the principle is no different. Her worry is not solved by the existence of a state. Say a band of strangers marches down Trump Street with their guns at the ready. Well, but instead of strangers, they all know each other and they're part of a costume camouflage wearing group called uh, Army or Military or Marines. When confronted by, I don't know who the equivalent would be, the people who live there, hey, we don't want you marching down our streets. We don't want a police state. Then what happens? So she sets herself up. She, she, she again, is using the, 
hey, bad, imperfect thing might happen. Therefore, government's justified. No, no, hold on. Bad, uncomfortable, prop, dangerous thing could happen. That in no way justifies uh, the legitimacy of a monopoly government. It's like, it's literally like saying bad things might happen. Don't you agree? In the world, bad things might happen. Of course I agree. It's the world. Yeah. So therefore, the Catholic Church should have a monopoly on laws and regulations. No, 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 no. That does not follow from the fact that bad things might... What do you mean the Catholic Church? Government has no more right than the Catholic Church or Scientology or Walmart or the Circle K gas station uh, to impose... The, so again, it's another non sequitur. Any um, predictions on a uh, Main Street scenario? I mean, what about Kent State? <laughs> I mean, that, I would say that. Or, I mean, what about the L.A. riots when the this police presence that Ayn Rand wanted utterly failed to protect business owners, and you have South Koreans on rooftops with their own weapons shooting away rioters? Was it South Koreans? I believe it was Koreans, right? Uh, they, they were Korean storms. I don't know if they escaped from the north or came voluntarily from the south. But but yeah, that uh, Mary Ruar talks about that book in her book, um, Questions and Answers uh, to Libertarianism. Yeah. That book is so goddamn good. I think about it all the time. All right, finally, the last one. Private force is force not authorized by the government. I, I don't think I've read this <laughs> already Pro unless she's just making a distinction without a principal difference not validated by its procedural safeguards and not subject to its supervision that is correct in the same way unlicensed industry is not authorized by the government i don't know please don't go anywhere bad <laughs> has to regard such private force as a threat i.e as a potential violation of individual rights Jesus, dude, I have not read this one. In barring such private force, the government is, retali is retaliating against the threat. In barring against such private force, the government is retaliating against the threat. You dumb ass. In what? Government has the right no one else does. They get a monopoly on all the weapons because a potential weapon in the hands of a private individual can threaten the state's monopoly. You haven't even justified the reason this group of individuals has a said monopoly in the first place, has extra rights that no one else had. If they get their rights from the people and the people didn't have the right in the first place, how can they delegate it to another group? Dude, that is so freaking sad. I mean, did, did she advocate for private gun ownership? You know what? Oh, that would be, that should be our next one. <laughs> we can go to the G's and see what she said, but... I know the head of the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook, is not a gun guy at all. Um, really? No, no. He's very anti-Second Amendment, saying um, that um, that is in the realm of force. Government should uh, be in the realm of force. Even if you, you did have all the guns, government has more guns. What matters is ideas, not force. And that's that's just wrong. That, that That's just obviously wrong. There were two cops killed in New York City, and as a result... Was it Bloomberg or de Blasio who said, you know what, that's it. We're not going to be patrolling the streets. We're only going to come out now if there's like a real immediate threat. To which all the ANCAPs around the world said, praise Jesus. <laughs> um, so no, uh, increasing likelihood that uh, governments uh, will have to bear the cost of 
their life or risk their life deters them from engaging in uh, such totalitarianism. Dude, that might have been one of the worst things I've ever heard from any objectivist, libertarian, or ANCAP. Private force should be barred and government should have a... Yeah, that, that is just so bad. And as I said, she hasn't justified the monopoly. She hasn't said why government group has rights. Private group X does not have. I hate to end it on that note, but heavens, what we're about. Whoa, 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 hold on. Go, go and look up the gun quote before we go. Uh, do, do you uh, have any response to, uh, to, to that one? I mean, nothing beyond what you already said. It, I mean, that's a totalitarian mindset. But I, just tell the Pashtun people of Afghanistan that, or, or you know, I've been uh, going over them for. Um, she actually does define government in the G section. A government is an institution that holds the exclusive power to enforce certain rules of social contact and conduct in a given geographical area. Nope, that also applies to corporations, neighborhoods, and HMOs. Um, yeah, so she doesn't distinguish between initiating violence on property you have not acquired versus property you have acquired. That's the difference between I get the rules of my house, and if I build an apartment complex, I get to make the rules, but you don't get to make the rules for the country. Right. That's the difference between the two monopolies. I've acquired it through voluntary funding, original appropriation, homesteading, voluntary exchange, and contract. Government has said, that over there by me signing this paper is mine and they get it from another group of psychos who didn't acquire it voluntarily in the first place this is really a dumpster fire keith <laughs> i didn't dude i had not read that last one i swear <laughs> what it's not under g it's not under guns maybe it's under second amendment we can we can find it later because uh, i don't think we've done one just on gun rights i know it comes up all the time because yeah no we haven't it'd probably be pretty popular too but she has three pages on sex, so gun something has to be in here. We'll, we'll, we'll do that next time. Any uh, final words, uh, Pat? Oh, no. Um, I think that's good, other than just our regular plugs as we close up here. Um, you know, maybe I didn't miss too much by not studying Ayn Rand. <laughs> now, we'll get uh, – too bad we can't get Michael Malice on to talk about Ayn Rand because he's both an anarchist and – really likes Rand. So yeah. But but this is a blind spot just like Thomas Jefferson had so many brilliant things to say. Yeah. But but they engaged in the contradiction of slavery. There's a lot of nice people who are Democrats and Republicans who have no problem supporting the murdering military. Well what is worse than that? As bad as regulating and taxing our if you support mass murder just because of some group does it, it's okay for that group. That's as bad as it gets. So once we just, if, if we can't rule out those people from still being good people, I think I ran, ran still uh, gets a pass. We'll have to look more into that. But uh, thank you for having me on. Great, uh, great time as always. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so as we close up here, all the regular plugs, uh, we are doing a live streamed Patreon Google Hangout where our Patreon, our patrons can come in and actually talk with us. 
and we'll be recording that and putting that on Patreon. So maybe we'll do that again in the future if this is pretty successful. But if you want to become a patron and get access to benefits like that and many more, patreon.com forward slash Liberty Weekly. Also our Amazon affiliate link, libertyweekly.net forward slash Amazon, where you can do all your regular Amazon shopping at no cost to you. And we get some bones from that. Um, email list at libertyweekly.net forward slash email. And uh, any plugs that you got, Keith. Keith Knight's Don't Tread on Anyone on YouTube. I'll put that in the show notes page. Uh, Keith, you've been doing such good work for such a long time, buddy. Well, thanks so much. I try to get at least one video out every four days. I try to uh, get, get something new out, and I got a great collage. It's another long collage, but it's the equip- It's still less than one day of schooling, which we did five days a week for 12 or 16 years. So my next collage, uh, it's terrific. I'll just tell you, it's uh, Jan Helfeld's Socratic Method. It's the best of his interviews of him just grilling these inconsistent politicians so subscribe on youtube and BitChute because youtube uh, they are cracking down they just banned like a ton of crowder's videos just because the guy from vox had written a complaint on twitter yeah that almost maza so yeah yeah on youtube and BitChute. uh everything you get on youtube you'll also get on BitChute. it's just a great place to have things archived yeah it's just a matter of time just a matter of time so well, with that, we'll close up. Thanks, everybody. Show notes can be found at libertyweekly.net forward slash 122. Peace.